0: When I was an Army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today I have two episodes that I didn't publish yet, and I'm now releasing to the public. I hope you can get the context. I'm not sure if they're in the right order. Thank you for listening. As always, it's been a week. I hope you're well, and I'm glad you're here. You, I don't know how many of you keep up with the news from our presiding bishop's office. Some Episcopalians are really into that stuff and they kind of know what's happening at the highest levels of our church and others are not that interested. When I first joined the Episcopal Church, I was not that interested in what was happening up at the very high echelons of power. I was more interested in what was happening in my local congregation that I was part of and that I prayed at and worshipped at. But some are more interested in those things. And a number of years ago, our previous presiding bishop, the the most Reverend Catherine Jefford Shorey, who I got to meet once, she came to Walter Reed when I was a chaplain there, and she visited us there and the, the Army chaplains. And I gave her a little tour of the hospital, and we went up to the top floor where a lot of the retirees who were on hospice, uh, in contrast to most of the soldiers at Walter Reed who were quite young, um, you know, under age 30, missing limbs, having brain injuries, things like that. Uh, There was a number of uh, retirees from the military who got health care at Walter Reed, And some of them would be in hospice and would be dying. And I went to visit one of them uh, with her. And I remember her holding this man, just holding him there in in his bed as he died. She prayed for him. It was a beautiful moment that I got to see. And um, her husband, uh, Richard is a photographer, and he followed her around for all those years. I don't know how many years she was presiding bishop, maybe eight or nine or ten. And he he just, you know, was like the perfect Ken husband. He just took uh, took pictures of her with various dignitaries and normal people like me, and, um, and has these pictures all filed. If you email him and you ever met the presiding bishop and you email him, he'll say, oh yeah, I've got that picture, and he'll send it to you And a That's how I got the pictures of me and Bishop Shuri uh, for many years ago. Anyway, she preached a rather infamous sermon in that it got everybody riled up. It created quite a buzz in the Episcopal world. Mind you, this is the time when the Episcopal Church is splitting almost in half, or at least a third is breaking off over the ordination of Bishop Gene Robinson, who is an openly gay man in New Hampshire, who became a bishop. And that really caused a lot of stir in our communion. And Bishop Shuri was kind of at the center of that in trying to navigate those waters and keep the church together, but also keep us protective of people who are vulnerable and not turn into an out-and-out um anti-gay institution, which many people felt that that was what the Episcopal Church needed to be. But um, she preached a sermon on this very text that was quite controversial. Um, Here we have this slave girl, the slave woman, according to the contemporary version. Um, She doesn't seem to be a child as much as a grown-up. But she is um, kept by her owners to make money by fortune telling. She has a spirit of divination. I love how the New Testament will go into great detail on some subjects. Uh, We have descriptions of some things that are in such great detail. We know the color and we know what they taste like and things like that, but for things like this, it doesn't say a lot about what the spirit of divination is. Is it an evil spirit? Is it a good spirit? Is it a um, something that she kind of likes to have—a power, a superpower—or is this something that's oppressing her? <clears throat> Certainly, it is tied to her enslavement by these men who are enslaving her and then using her gifts or abilities to make money, making a lot of money. People are flocking from all over to hear these to get their fortunes told by her. And in this sermon, um, the, the takeaway kind of was, and it was far more nuanced than this, was that Paul and Silas kind of uh, ruined her life um, by casting this spirit out. Which, you know, there's, there's some wiggle room for argument that this is a neutral spirit, not something that's really hurting her. But um, but this ruins her life. Now she can't tell fortunes anymore. And now these guys aren't making money off her. And this is the event that kind of takes her agency away and makes her more vulnerable in that society. And that created quite an uproar, sort of saying that this miracle of healing and exorcism was a bad thing for her and you know as this controversial sermon rocked the episcopal church world it just broke broke down along the lines of people that hated her didn't like the sermon people that liked her were kind of like yeah it's maybe i wouldn't have preached that but you know it's in the text it's kind of plausible anyway this text always reminds me of that that when a woman does something there's always a little more scrutiny on it. There's always a little more panic button pushing. Oh no, the church is falling apart. I heard a sermon that I didn't like or didn't agree with. And because there's a woman in charge, maybe that's the real problem, but I can't say that. So I'll just critique her sermon like it was the atom bomb dropped in the middle of A church or something like that. And that's certainly not the case. But those dynamics of a woman being involved is right there in the text. This woman is enslaved. She has a spirit of divination that is not helping her. It is helping her owners. Um, And so right away, we can see that there is oppression. There is lack of agency in her life. Through the Spirit, she cries out who Paul and Silas are. They are slaves of the Most High God, and they proclaim the way of salvation. I love how the demons in the New Testament are more theologically astute than most of the people, including the Christians and the apostles. It is the demons that Jesus meets who declare he's the Son of God. It is the demons in this story that declare who Paul and Silas are. Um, and so Paul recognizes right away um, that she is oppressed. Now, it does say in the text, and this is where Bishop Shorey kind of went with it, Paul was very much annoyed and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of here, come out of her. Um, and that annoyance um, was the exegetical or Bible study twist and turn that said, Paul is annoyed here, and he's taking out his frustration on this vulnerable woman who now has lost her livelihood. Not a bad interpretation. What is behind this annoyance of Paul? We know he gets annoyed several times in, this, in Scripture. Here, this annoyance uh, certainly prompts a deliverance. And I, it's, much, it's something to reflect on, whether we see this as some kind of impulse exorcism by Paul, where it doesn't help this woman because she kind of disappears from the story. We don't know what happens to her. Her life might have gotten a whole lot worse. Um, it doesn't say that she becomes a Christian or follows Paul and Silas or in any way has a better outcome from this. Um, so we must leave that interpretation as one of the possibilities. Um, but what are we annoyed at in the spirit of the age? Um, there is a holy annoyance, but it ought to drive us to liberation. Our anger should lead to righteousness. Our holy anger at injustice, oppression, enslavement, someone being used and abused. Um, the word abuse is a word we use a lot in English today for a variety of, of things. Um, but the root etymology or the origin of the word abuse is the word use. To use something um, for its intended purpose is the way we're supposed to do it. But ob um, ab, abuse, ab, use, the ob prefix of use is to use it badly to use it in a wrong way. It means wrong use, ultimately. And so we can imagine a world where this young woman, or woman, it doesn't specify her age here, um, this woman would have had a life of caring for other people with these gifts that she had, or at least she she would be able to get help. Because it's been monetized by these men, these kidnappers, these enslavers, um, there is no personal agency for her. And so freeing her from this abuse um, becomes a priority of the Holy Spirit in this time. And it disrupts the economic flow of the marketplace. Um, The owners get so angry at Paul and Silas for doing this, they grab him, they drag him through the marketplace before the authorities And they go right to their Jewishness. They're in Europe now. They are not in a Semitic or Asian world anymore. Uh, The Jews there are foreigners and strangers. And so they cite, these guys are Jews trying to do Jewish stuff in our Roman city. How many times have we heard this in America? These people... Those people are coming in here and doing stuff that is un-American, that is whatever. Um, This is the ultimate charge that is laid against them. And they're not, they are Jews, but they are actually Christian apostles. So quite off the mark, it doesn't matter because the authorities don't care about who's right and who's wrong. All they care about is the flow of the money. That's all they care about. And so they order them beaten with rods. The origin of the term fascist comes from this text as well. Um, not from this text, but we see the presence of what is later thought of as fascism here in this text. Uh, the fasces was a symbol of Roman government uh, that is on many U.S. Uh, buildings. If you go to the Washington, D.C., and maybe even at our Texas capital, but I have not, I don't have a exact location. But most of our judicial and legislative buildings in the United States have the symbol of the fasces on them. The fasces is that axe. It's an axe with a bunch of sticks tied around it. So it's kind of like a real fat axe, like the handle of the axe is really thick. And the axe is just kind of popping up over the bundle of sticks that is collected around the axe handle. And this becomes a symbol of Roman law, law and order, that Rome can chop your head off with the axe, if need be, or Rome can take one of those sticks, the lictus, off the side of the axe and hit you with it. Um, They have the right to both punish you capitally, the capital, your head, or corporally on your body with the sticks. And the lictors were professionals designated to hit people with the the sticks. Um, And they certainly had executioners that were willing to swing the ax. Um, All this to say that we see Roman law and order happening right here in this story. And all they care about is disturbing the peace they pull out the sticks from the fascists, the symbol, and beat them with it—a severe flogging. Uh, many years later, really in Italy in the nineteen um, thirties, Benito Mussolini and others revive the the symbol of the fascists, the fascists, and become known as fascists um, by their mostly by their enemies. I think the Nazis in Germany were not really called fascists until many years later, but it was an Italian movement. And the symbol of the fascists is on every building um, of government in Rome and in lots of US buildings too. Now it means something completely different. um, Often someone who only cares about law and order at the expense of every other kind of justice. Um, So we can see this happening to Paul. That's the problem with law and order. Eventually, it becomes um, just a way of keeping the peace at any cost, and people like Paul and Silas, who are there to liberate this woman, are get beaten by those same sticks. So Martin Luther and many other Christian writers throughout the centuries have noted that whenever the authorities, whenever the church becomes the, the physical authority and the governmental authority, they often turn that sword or those sticks on people that just disagree with them and, um, and move beyond the law and order to the let's make sure everybody agrees with us on every point and isn't allowed to protest or anything like that. Um, and yet, so here we can see this. And they are stuck in the innermost cell of this dungeon and their feet are put in stocks. Here the gospel seems to be chained up The gospel is beaten. The gospel is bruised. The gospel is hidden away in a cave under the earth. And the Christian movement could die right here. Uh, With Paul and Silas in this dungeon, it might be all over. And so uh, that's where the text, the story ends. But we know the story doesn't end there. Because God's word of good news in Jesus can never be completely extinguished even if we bury it underground, even if the Roman authorities come in, or any authorities. Christians, we get involved in our government. We do all we can. We pray for our leaders. We get involved. We run for office. We get involved in our communal life. We serve in the army. We serve in the police force. We do all kinds of things to care for our community. But ultimately, we recognize also that um, Christians have been Christians throughout 2,000 years, and we've been Christians in every kind of government, whether it's Genghis Khan or in a Muslim country the, under the sultans, the Mamelukes, the Byzantine Empire, which wasn't always all that Christian, um, and certainly in every other time and place in human society for 2,000 years, Christians have existed with every form of government, with every good government and every bad government. We've made it, we've survived, and we always will, um, because ultimately Jesus is king. And we get involved in our communities and serve in our government. And we do everything we can to promote justice and peace in the earth. But um, always recognizing that, um, that this crowd can turn on us at any moment. And that is when we will be most like Jesus. Amen. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes from the New Testament is this um, encounter with a Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. This um, happens after a major event in Roman history here in Philippi or Philippi. I grew up hearing it pronounced Philippi probably better pronounce it Philippi, because the I in Greek and those old languages is often pronounced in the E sound. Nevertheless, Philippi was a suicide post. It always had the association of suicide in it. The most famous suicide that happened at Philippi was of a man named Brutus. You might remember him from Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, or any other cinematic portrayal of the life of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, a Roman general from a noble family, conquers Gaul, modern-day France, and then fights the triumvirate, Mark Antony and... Pompey, and they fight for control of the Roman Empire. Caesar eventually wins and becomes the first Roman emperor. The word emperor means conqueror, and the Roman Republic ends. Rome was a republic for many years. Rome never had kings. Rome got rid of all their kings pretty early on and established a republic, they had a senate, they had somewhat elected officials, although they all came from the noble families. But they um, tried this thing called republicanism, which was a form of democracy, the rule of the people. Um, But there was nobody in charge of it all, completely, until Julius Caesar comes along. And he becomes the Caesar. It is a family name, which becomes a title, which eventually trickles down to many languages. Um, The Russian Tsar is a form of Caesar. The German Kaiser was a form of the word Caesar. Um, And even today, when a president appoints a person to run a task force, they appoint a Tsar a drug czar in the 80s to deal with a drug problem. Um, This is still a title and it's also, you know, the Caesar salad and all that. But Julius Caesar is such a prominent figure in Roman history that he overshadows many of the events even in the Bible. Um, It is his heir apparent Caesar Augustus, who is the, the emperor during the birth of Jesus who calls for the Roman tax to be levied. But Julius Caesar rises to so much power that the other senators that have helped him rise to power, many of them, start to wonder if he wants to be a king. And Rome doesn't have any kings. So they conspire to murder him. His closest cousin, I think it's his nephew, Brutus, um, who has fought with him and been an ally to him Is the main conspirator in the plot. And it is he who stabs, he stabs Caesar with a whole bunch of other guys there in the um, forum, wherever the Senate meeting happened at. And they gather around him and they stab him a whole bunch of times. So everyone is equally guilty in this assassination. And Caesar famously says in Shakespeare, um, et tu brute. You too, Brutus, in uh, the Greek, which Caesar actually spoke, more likely in the historical record, he says, Kai su technon, and you also child, he says to Brutus. He treats him like a child. He says, you're my child, my heir. You're gonna inherit all this and you're killing me. Um, Brutus then fights some more and is eventually defeated um, at, at Philippi. And there at Philippi he kills himself. He dies by suicide um, there at Philippi. And it's a suicide post. It's a major place for all sorts of um all sorts of political events, but it is known for this death of, of Brutus primarily. And so when Paul and Silas, who have caused a major disruption by casting this spirit of divination out of this woman who's enslaved. And there's a riot and there's public disturbance. They're accused of being Jews who are trying to subvert the customs of the Romans. They're brought before the magistrate. They're beaten violently, and they're thrown into this dungeon, this hole in the ground. Um, There was really no prison system In the Roman world like we know it today. Um, Prisons, dungeons, jailhouses, whatever we call them, were simply places where people awaited trial or punishment, either execution, public humiliation, flogging, other awful punishments that Romans like to do to people. Um, And so they're kind of just there in limbo waiting for Uh, the next event of their lives, which isn't going to be good. They've already been beaten. They're probably in great pain. And Paul and Silas are there at midnight praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. It's an amazing scene. I don't know if you can imagine this. The pain that they're in. And yet they seem to have this kind of euphoria that only comes when you know you're doing what's right. Even in the situation that is the worst you can possibly imagine, there is this strange uh, opposite feeling of praise to God. And they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. We can imagine them praying perhaps that they are in anguish, crying out to God, save us, deliver us. But that's not what they're doing completely. I'm sure they are a little bit. They're singing to God. Who do you sing to? When you sing in church, um, I hope you sing to God. I hope that you see your voice being listened to by God. Um, All praise and adoration goes to God. Um, Ultimately, that is all we can do. Um, even in the midst of this very difficult situation. Here we have this Christian precedent to sing songs of victory and triumph even at the grave. We make our song. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. And what were they singing? It doesn't say in the text. But one of the things I love about enriching our worship is the canticles that we have We have a lot more canticles in the enriching our worship. Some of them are from Christian history, like Julian of Norwich or Anselm of Canterbury. But many of them are drawn from Holy Scripture. Um, Many Christian or biblical scholars have identified a couple hymns in the New Testament. Um, Certainly in the book of Revelation, it says that they're singing a hymn, and there's the hymn in the text some of which we sing still today, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And in the epistle to the Philippians, we have another hymn that many have identified as an early Christian hymn. And it is written to the Philippian Christians from Paul's jail cell. Um, He is imprisoned now awaiting his trial. And he writes this letter to the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi, where he was first imprisoned, the place of his own imprisonment. He writes this prison epistle to people who would have known about his own imprisonment and singing from this jail. And in chapter 2, he has the hymn, which um, in many modern translations is lined out kind of like a poem, like a hymn. and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Was this the hymn that they sang in that cell? We don't really know, but it's a Philippian hymn. It's one that likely they would have known. And so this power of praise causes an earthquake. It is so violent that the very foundations of the prison were shaken and the doors were open and everyone's chains fell off. What more beautiful symbol of God's liberation than these events? The very icon of Roman authority and power in the world, which is the Roman cross, and the Roman prison is completely falling apart. And what does this jailer do? This jailer is most likely a soldier. The The Roman world really didn't have a distinction between police and military like we try to do here in this country. We have laws, passe comitatis laws, that um, govern the use of our military doing police work on American citizens, but those lines are quite blurry. Many times, especially as the National Guard are allowed to do more policing than active duty military in this country. But the Roman world really didn't have infrastructure the way we think of like the State Department. They just had an army. And so this jailer is most likely a soldier with some responsibility. He's in charge of this jail and the punishment for escaped prisoners, all of them, is death. So he knows that that is what is facing him when they have his trial. Um, so he decides to kill himself. He draws a sword and he's going to kill himself with this Roman sword. But Paul shouts in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. Why didn't he let this Roman jailer die? Why didn't he let him kill himself? The Roman jailer was going to be a danger to these other prisoners. He was going to perhaps prevent them from escaping. Paul knew this. He saw it all happen right in front of him. Why didn't he just let him die? Why did Paul save his life? Yet this is the mystery of God's love and grace. Paul has transformed his suffering into praise. He knows how to sing with Silas there in this prison. He knows how to pray after being beaten horribly. And he knows that this jailer who likely caused this harm to him doesn't say who beat him but he's part of that system that caused this horrible abuse he saves his life and the jailer calls for lights and rushes in he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas he brings him out what must i do to be saved and paul says but they say paul and silas believe on the lord jesus and you will be saved you and your household and they have this great theological discussion of who Jesus is and what he means for this Roman soldier, this jailer there in this ruined prison. And this whole household is baptized. Here we have a household baptism, a sign of the comprehensive nature of baptism that it is not just for an individual decision to follow Jesus, but it is part of a a covenant of God's grace for an entire family and probably other people there that live there as well. They go from this place of great shame to a place of great honor in the jailer's house. And then they're released. And then they find out that they actually violated Roman law by flogging and and beating Paul so badly. As Roman citizens, they were exempt from these public humiliations. Um, And so, everything is transformed. And then we have this beautiful detail at the end, where it says they asked them to leave the city, they apologized to them, and then they asked them to leave the city, and they went back to Lydia's home, where the church was meeting, and encouraged the brothers and the sisters there. Again, we can see Lydia, a leader in the church, the The name, the nickname for the church in Philippi is Lydia's Home. Maybe a great name for a church. There's probably a church out there named Lydia's Home, Lydia's House out there. Um, And so we can see that this early church is starting to learn how to live in the world, the Roman world that is governed by militaristic um, brutality, where failure means suicide. Um, And I I just wanna say a word that um, all of us um, have likely contemplated um, our own deaths by suicide. Um, It's a normal thing to think about at some point in life, especially when things are overwhelming. Um, And many people in our world today um, start to develop a plan for that, start to feel that Um, things are so overwhelming and they're never gonna get better that maybe I wish I was dead and maybe I should do something about that. And I felt those feelings many times um, in my life. Um, There's something about this honor-shame society that the Roman world thrives in, that this soldier lives in, that the only thing worse than, you know, that suicide is preferable to the disgrace of his office and honor. Um, That's the reason Brutus killed himself in Philippi. And that's the reason this jailer is going to do it. And it is this honor shame dichotomy that causes so much um, self-harm and self-destruction that if we lose our honor, we lose our goodness. We do something we regret. We, things don't work out for us, we fail in some way, and that ultimately we don't deserve to be alive anymore. And that is a lie, that is the devil's lie. That is um, not true. There is nothing, nothing we can do that will separate us from the love of God and Christ. And not even suicide. People that die from suicide need our compassion, need our love, need our prayers. Um, and all those who contemplate suicide, maybe for a long time in their life, or maybe just a short time, need our compassion and love and care. Um, they certainly do not need more shame and more, um, more failure words of, that indicate they are failures in their whole being. Um, ultimately, to live in this world is to fail. And to have mistakes made and mess up and and not do everything right all the time and um, have things happen to us so we can't control. And all these things are part of living in this human world that Paul recognizes in this Philippian soldier jailer. Um, and he says that there is a hope and a future for him. And um I think there always is. It's hard to say that to someone who's really in despair. Um, And we say it with great compassion and great care. Careful not to, you know, overdo it and say that everything's going to be fine. It's all going to work out. Um, Sometimes it won't all work out. But you will work out. You will be there. You will be fine. Because God doesn't really care it seems, about all the stuff that we care about. God cares about us. And I've tried to learn that lesson in my short life, that the things I've really cared about and tied my personal honor to and my personal success to and my sense of self-worth to have rarely been things that God has cared about at all. Um, God cares about me. And that's about it. All the other trappings of my life and accomplishments and things I might do and not do and achieve and spend all this mental energy and emotional energy trying to make work. Um, God doesn't always care about all that stuff. God cares about me. God cares about you. God cares about this Philippian jailer. God cares about Saul and and Silas and about the whole family there that lives in this place, in this house. God cares about you. Amen. As we have been speaking of, women in the Bible, today the church honors Joanna, Mary, and Salome, the myrrh-bearing women. Joanna, Mary, and Salome are traditionally counted as the three women who came to Jesus' tomb early in the morning on the day of resurrection in order to anoint his body with myrrh and other spices. They were followers of Jesus during his earthly ministry and remained with him throughout his arrest, crucifixion, and burial, and they discovered his empty tomb after his resurrection. Little is known about their lives beyond their faithful and unwavering devotion and service to Christ. Joanna is identified in the Gospel of Luke as the wife of Chusa, a steward of Herod. Um, and in Luke 8, ch- chapter 8, is counted among the women who followed Jesus and provided for him after being healed by him. So what little we know about Joanna is that she's married to this public official who works for Herod, which when you think about it is pretty wild and crazy, that um just absurd that here, Herod's steward and official court official is has a spouse who is a traveling disciple with Jesus. This is the guy who killed John the Baptist, who then presides over Jesus's trial. Um, really amazing crossover event here in in this life of Jesus. And yet she was there and faithful, and it doesn't seem like it was a problem. The Gospel of Mark includes Salome in a list of women present at the crucifixion with no further information. Some Christian tradition says she was a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus, but I don't think there's any real evidence for that from the biblical witness in addition to Joanna, Salome, and Mary Magdalene, Matthew has a list of women, lists a woman who, who refers, it refers to as the other Mary. There are so many Marys in the New Testament. It is the name Miriam, who is the sister of Moses, who is there singing as they finish their exodus through the Red Sea and many other adventures of Miriam, that's the name Mary. And Mary Magdalene, uh, Matthew refers to this other Mary who's there. Mark 16 refers to her as Mary, the mother of James. James the Apostle, yeah. And John 19 recounts that Mary is the wife of Cleopas, who was present at the crucifixion. And Christian tradition is assumed that all three of these Marys is actually the same person. If this other Mary is the same person, if they're all the same person, all three of these Marys who are mentioned is all one and the same person, then this Mary was present on the road to Emmaus because um, that one disciple is not mentioned by name, the other Mary, and Cleopas is there on the road to Emmaus who has this long conversation with a stranger who turns out to be Jesus after his resurrection. This little, the little information we have about these women shows them to be faithful disciples and worthy of our commemoration, and more importantly, our emulation. There is a particular devotion to these holy myrrh bearers in the Orthodox Church on the second Sunday of Easter called Myrrh Bearers Sunday. So we think of this perfume, myrrh, Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume Breathes a light of gathering gloom Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying Sealed in the stone-cold tomb Oh, Oh, star of wonder, star of night Star with royal beauty bright Westward leading, still proceeding Guide us to that holy light a song we sang not too long ago. Almighty God, who revealed the resurrection of your son to Joanna, Mary, and Salome as they faithfully came bearing myrrh to his tomb, grant that we too may perceive the presence of the risen Lord in the midst of pain and fear and go forth proclaiming his resurrection who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.